we come to this beautiful, partly tragic, and ultimately profitable story of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. King David made Jerusalem the royal center last week, and now he desires to make it the religious center this week. He will do that by bringing the Ark. The Ark is found 16 times in this chapter. It's everywhere. It dominates the narrative. This is not the first time we've seen the Ark in Samuel, but it's been a long time. In fact, it's been 11 months to the day when I last mentioned it in a sermon. That was all the way back in 1 Samuel. From 1 Samuel 7 to 2 Samuel 5, the ark is absent. It's not found on the pages of scripture. It's nowhere. It drops from the narrative. 29 chapters, no ark. Then suddenly, 16 times, the ark. The ark is back. What is the ark? You say, Kyle, you can just skip this. I've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing in that movie that will help you understand anything in this chapter. We don't get our theology from Indiana Jones. Back in Exodus, God commanded Moses to build an ark. The ark was a gold-plated rectangular chest, four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet high. It had a gold ring at every corner. Two gold-plated holes helped poles helped to move the ark without touching it. God wanted to make sure that no one touched the chest of God. In the ark were symbols of God's care for his people. The tablets, that's how God commanded them. The manna, that's how God provided for them. The rod, that's how God saved them. The mercy seat was the lid over the ark. Some have called it the atonement cover. On the lid were cherubims. Uh, These are angels that are mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. Most people picture chubby little creatures. These were powerful, majestic creatures. Uh, The top of the ark was God's throne, his footstool. The law, the Ten Commandments on the tablets, were under his feet. Once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would drain the blood from the lamb and apply it to the mercy seat, which pictured covering the broken law with blood. By the time the box is mentioned in our chapter, it has already traveled with God's people for 40 years in the desert, been with them during the 400-year period of the judges. You say, what's so extraordinary about the ark? It's, It's a golden suitcase, big deal. The big deal is it's the portable symbol of God's presence, a tangible reminder, a visible earthly token that represented God's presence. It was Israel's holiest artifact. The chest of Acadia wood covered in gold was God's chest, but he didn't reside in the ark. God didn't set up residence in the box. The Ten Commandments were in the ark. The manna in a jar was in the ark. That's some old moldy bread by now, 440 years old. Aaron's rod was in there, but God wasn't. Let's talk about how the ark arrived in our passage. How did it get there? What's the ark's backstory in the book of Samuel? Well, we were first introduced to it as the lucky ark. Back in 1 Samuel 4, Israel fought the Philistines and were trounced. 4,000 dead. They were defeated because God was displeased with them. Instead of seeking out the source of that displeasure, they say, well, let's 
let's get the ark of God and, and go back and fight the Philistines for round two. The ark is only 20 miles away in Shiloh. This is a great idea. Remember when, when we crossed the Jordan on dry ground? What went before us? The ark. When we defeated Jericho, what marched around the walls with us? The ark. That's what we need, the good old days with the ark. With the ark on the battlefield, we will leave those Philistines dead in the dirt. The ark arrives, the people rejoice. They viewed it like a military superweapon. They went into round two with much more confidence. However, the same result pursued. This time, 30,000 soldiers died. Israel left with their tails between their legs, running back to their homes. A phrase that means in the text, they, they broke military formation and scattered. Israel had to learn, you can't put God in a box. This was God's box. His, his representative symbol, a visual aid. But God wasn't in the box. He used the box to teach his people about his holiness and their sin. But to Israel... This box was nothing more than a rabbit's foot, a four-leaf clover, a good luck charm. This just shows not only did they not understand the chest of God, but they didn't understand the God of the chest. They pulled this ark out saying it's, it's lucky charm time. They failed to distinguish between the presence of God and the symbols of the presence of God. God was where the holy objects were, God was not the holy objects. Tim Keller points out that when you study scripture, the presence of God is sometimes attached to a particular person or a particular object, but only for a time. God is not always attached to that object. He is never permanently affixed. He doesn't always boil at 212 degrees. Israel was actually trying to manipulate God into giving them victory. This is a pressure tactic. Putting God under pressure. He will have to save us now for his own name's sake. They're trying to twist God's arm. Beloved, God makes demands of us. We don't make demands of him. Verse 17 in 1 Samuel 4 says, He who brought the news said Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has been a great defeat among the people. And the ark of God has been captured. This line is repeated five times in that story. Never in history had the ark of God fallen into enemy hands. 440 years it was with God's people. Now it's with the Philistines. This is huge. There is not an event of similar magnitude in the Old Testament. The lucky ark, and now the scary ark. The Philistines took the ark, And it caused havoc in their pagan temple. So they started passing the ark around from city to city like a hot potato. Chapter 5 verse 6 says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Babies with tumors, young mothers with tumors, military men with tumors, senior citizens with tumors, tumors everywhere. The ark had fallen into their hands. But really, they had fallen into the hands of God. God's glory box marched through the Philistine territory on a victory tour. City after city defeating them. Doing what Israel had failed to do. See, God took Israel and the Philistines to school. He had lessons for everybody. 
God said to Israel, I will not permit you to use the ark like a magic wand. But neither will I allow the Philistines to demean me like a trophy of war. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. People were dying. People were ending their lives because of the tumor pain. Wherever the ark went, tumors bulged. It was a scary ark. The Philistines called the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Consensus among the citizens and and pagan spiritual advisors was clear. Send it back. Wave the white flag. Throw in the towel. The Philistines will put the ark of God on a new cart and send it back to Israel. That the sign of God's presence had now returned. Glory had returned. And it had nothing to do with them. Israel didn't go out and capture the ark. God did. God returns home in victory. And it's, and it's vital that you understand that even though the ark returned to Israel, the spiritual, the prevailing spiritual atmosphere did not change. We know the ark was stored in Kiriath Jerem, chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. This man, Eliezer, became the guardian of the ark. When we arrive to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, we find the dusty ark. We've arrived at our text. Chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up there the ark of God. The ark has been located at this house for decades. At least 20 years, maybe 40. It hasn't moved. It's in some back room. It's dusty. It has spider webs on it. Is that a, is that a green spot? Is it tarnishing? Let me clean that off. The ark has disappeared. It's languished in exile for years. It's been absent from the center of Israel's worship. It's the long neglected ark of God. Like a famous painting. Left in a storage facility. And forgotten about. The ark wasn't lost. It just wasn't valued. But David hasn't forgotten about it. David knows its importance that it's played in Israel's history. David wants the ark. David has a passion for the ark. Like a moth to the light, David finds the presence of God irresistible. The presence of God must be pursued. The ark was more than the presence of God, but it wasn't anything less than that. The worship of God had elapsed. Saul didn't really encourage the people to worship God. He had no concern for the ark and its location. So the proper worship of God was in decline. The ark, 40 years with Moses, 400 years with God's people during the period of the judges. Saul stored it during his 400-year reign. This is a 500-year-old box. David wants the box. He wants to bring it out of storage. After all these years of dormancy, it is coming back. He will recover the chest of God. The ark is back 
David took chosen men. These are usually troops. They make the eight to nine mile march. 30,000 soldiers. That's interesting. Why that number? 30,000 Israelites died when the ark was first captured by the Philistines. Now, 30,000 Israelites will accompany the ark home. This isn't by accident. This is huge pageantry, and it should be. This is a big day in the history of God's people. Verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all his house and of and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Eliezer, who was in charge of storing the ark for the past 20 to 40 years, must have died. So his two brothers, Uzzah and Ohio, accompanied the ark. It had to be carried by men in the priestly family. David and these two men built a, a cart a new cart to transport the ark. Now that's nice. They are respecting the ark. This cart is unpolluted by previous secular use. No bottles, no food carried on this bad boy. They are honoring the ark. But not really. They are violating the instruction of God's law. Exodus 25, Numbers 4, on how to transport the ark. The ark is to be carried on poles, resting on the shoulders of Levites. David didn't read the instruction manual on moving the ark. Who can fault David, however? No one had participated in this form of worshiping God in decades. It was the failure of the previous generation to teach the upcoming generation how to honor the Lord in transporting the ark. They thought putting it on a royal cart would be acceptable. But it was not. Ox carts carry boxes more efficiently than human shoulders. But efficiency was never God's concern. This is a careless sin of failing to obey God's word. They are violating the Torah. In fact, they seem just as clueless on how to transport the ark as the pagan Philistines. They used a new cart to transport it. They are following Philistine procedure instead of divine procedure. Now you may ask, why all the elaborate regulations surrounding the transportation of this ark? Because God is with his people, but not the same as his people. Don't carry the symbol of my presence like you carry jugs of milk. I am completely other. You get this picture of a procession heading towards Jerusalem. And, and they're all singing and they're all celebrating. They're running 30,000 deep. This is the world's longest parade. The slow pace allows for groups to play music while walking in front of the float. They have both stringed instruments, harp, lyre, and, and percussion instruments, tambourine, cymbals. They're singing at the top of their lungs. This music is both national and worshipful. These are Israel's songs. Maybe they are singing some of the psalms. We've seen the lucky ark 
the scary ark, the dusty ark, now the wobbly ark. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. The ark in transportation was supposed to be covered in a stained blue leather goatskin. That, of course, was not happening. This was, was, it was meant to be covered because you were not even supposed to gaze upon it. There, there wasn't a, a steering wheel for the oxen cart, so one man was out front leading the oxen and the other was walking beside the ark. Apparently, one of the oxen stepped in a rut and stumbled. This caused the ark to wobble. Uzzah, just out of reaction, put out his hand to steady the wobbling ark. He saved the day. The ark didn't hit the dirty ground. But this made God blaze in anger. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. David's ark procession ground to a halt. The musical instruments went silent. The celebration stopped. There's Uzzah on the ground, writhing, twitching. Then suddenly, no longer moving. He's dead. It's like he was hit with a high voltage electrical shock. God killed him. What was this man's crime? Saving the ark from falling and becoming dented and broken? Was this a knee-jerk reaction from God? You're going to kill a man for steadying a tottering ark? This seems awfully harsh. What a huge penalty for a small infraction. Was God really that OCD about his ark? I don't like people touching my stuff. I want to rain truths on you as we walk through this text. And this is the first truth. The God of the Bible is not very marketable. The Uzzah story goes against the grain of human preference. This seems like a divine overreaction. I mean, there are other people in this book who who murdered individuals, who abused individuals, and yet God doesn't kill them. Was God having a bad day? Were people stepping on his nerves? This whole story makes most people's skin crawl. It's uncomfortable to their ears. Listen. The church has no business marketing God. Making him palatable to the people. Making him less tame to our postmodern culture. I am not embarrassed by this text. I love it. You need to understand that God decides what warrants immediate death. Not you. He sometimes manifests his power and judgment to demonstrate that his word must be obeyed. Some scholars have attempted to tame this passage by, by saying that the, the friction from the wagon wheels hitting the road caused an electrical shock. And this whole thing was random. No. God killed this man. It was not an accident. God is not warm and fuzzy. He's not your homie in the sky. Don't you dare trifle with the creator of the universe. See, we want to be Uzzah's lawyer. Well, I mean, 
he meant well. He touched the ark instinctually, not purposefully. It's not just about the touch. It's about the heart behind the touch. Uzzah was casual in God's presence. God laid out the rules for transporting the ark. No touch, no look, no cart. Uzzah and his brother disregarded each one. Touching it was the final straw. God had written in Numbers 4, if you touch the ark, you will die. This is what Uzzah gets for playing fast and loose with revealed truth. He ignored, defied God's clear instructions. This was not an honorable act of devotion, but a horrific act of arrogance. Uzzah didn't understand his own sinfulness. He thought his hand was less dirty than the ground. But dirt never committed sin. Man had. Dirt never blasphemed God. Man did. Dirt could not pollute the ark. Man could. This is God's presence. Dynamic, but dangerous. If you run full sprint into a California redwood, you will be knocked down. Because the tree is doing what it does. It stands firm. Uzzah ran into God's holiness. And it did what it does. Knocks him to the ground. However innocent his intentions might have been. It shows a lack of reverence. A lack of awe. Seemingly good intentions. Accompanied by sincere expressions of worship. Do not negate disobedience. Which leads to our second truth. The Lord expects his people to respect his holiness. The Lord expects his people to respect his holiness. If we have a problem with this account, then we have a lot to learn about the holiness of God. If it offends us, the most likely explanation is that we have not comprehended the enormous offense of our sin, or the perfect holiness of our God. We are offended because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. He doesn't. R.C. Sproul said, we think that Uzzah should have heard the voice of God shouting down from heaven, crying, thank you, Uzzah. No. The point is, Uzzah grew casual with the ark, familiar with it. He no longer treated it with weight. It didn't make him tremble. He no longer regarded the weightiness of God. He forgot that God was dangerous. His holiness is deadly. It's easy to become so accustomed to God that you lose awe of him. You forget the nuclear power of his glory. The sin of Uzzah is to refuse to treat God as God says he is. Uzzah's death, contrary to what you may think, Uzzah's death wasn't sudden. It was years in the making. He gradually gradually lost a sense of the awe of God. Beloved, are you doing the same? Some of you are new here. You'll notice we're a bit formal in our service. It's not super casual. That's on purpose. Casualness is not the height of intimacy. 
We've encountered the lucky ark, the scary ark, the dusty ark, the wobbly ark, now the risky ark. Verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, Keller says David was angry at himself. Maybe. I think he was angry at God. David named the place Perez Uzzah, which means the explosion against Uzzah. The name is very similar to the name in the last chapter, which meant the explosion against the Philistines. God broke out against the Philistines, and God broke out against Uzzah. The word is used four times in these two chapters. God broke out. Alistair Begg sees David essentially saying, God, I don't mind when you break out and it's for my benefit. But I don't like it when you break out like this and it's to my detriment. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? <laughs> David, David calls off the trip. He says, we, we aren't bringing this ark to Jerusalem or else we're all going to die. The ark is back. Oh, wait, just kidding. The ark isn't coming back. Let's put it back in storage. David's conclusion is that God is simply too dangerous to deal with. Which is wrong. Verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David stops by Obed-Edom's house on the way to Jerusalem and says, Hey friend, it's, it's been a long time. I thought I'd bring you a gift. Let me dump this toxic barrel of liquid at your place. <laughs> I don't know how it went down. I'm not sure what type of short straw Obed drew to have the ark stored at his place. But I'm sure he wasn't excited to see the ark roll into his front yard. Obed was a Gentile. Most scholars believe he was a converted, converted Philistine. He, he's a Gittite, which means he was from Gath. Remember Goliath of Gath? Same hometown. David had Gittites in his army. This is a converted Gentile living in Jewish territory. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. No tumors began to grow on Obed's body. Other things started to grow. Blessings, blessing after blessing. And this likely took the form of fertility in fields, flock, and family. Obed. Man, you're, you're pulling in eight times the crop yield as the rest of us. Your wife is pregnant with quadruplets? Every time I look over at your sheep, they're, they're giving birth. His Jewish neighbors were saying, I wish we had what you have. Obed was a Gentile. God's blessing to the Gentiles provoked jealousy among the Jews. Romans 11.14 speaks of that. God's true intent was to bless the people with the ark, not to destroy them. So on our journey here, we have the lucky ark, the scary ark, the dusty ark, the wobbly ark, the risky ark. Next, the celebration ark, verse 12. And it was told King David, 
The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Eden and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David's thinking, I've got to get some of this blessing for myself. I've got to get some of this blessing for all Israel. So he organizes a second attempt to move the ark. But this time, he studies the Torah. He discovered the folly of his previous attempt. That This time, verse 13 says, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat animal. David transported the ark by Levites holding the poles on their shoulders. The parallel account in 1 Chronicles 15 confirms this. David acknowledges, I'm finally going to do it God's way. He, he even went above and beyond. The text says when the Levites holding the ark took the first six steps, they stopped and made a sacrifice. They didn't do this every six steps, but the first six steps. This suggests a sort of Sabbath rest with the seventh step, suggesting the consecration of the whole journey. First Chronicles 15, 26 says they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. The perfect sacrifice with that seventh step. And it's interesting when you think about that both times they transported the ark, something died. The first time around, it was Uzzah. The second time around, seven bulls and seven rams. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David danced with great abandon. Did he have rhythm? Not sure. It didn't stop him from dancing. David views his dancing as an act of worship. Dancing is an appropriate expression of joy before the Lord. David is dancing and everyone in the parade is dancing. If the Chinese government ended persecution, there would be reason for the Chinese church to dance. If Ukraine drove out Russia from their country, they'd be dancing in the streets. Was this dancing in our text, was it national dancing or worshipful dancing? I think it was both. David is wearing a linen ephod. He's dressed like a priest. Commentators debate on if he wore only this ephod or if he wore the ephod on top of his kingly robe. You could start two denominations on that issue. I think he took off his royal robe and put on the linen ephod. This ephod could have been similar to a kilt, a short garment tied around the waist, which leads us to another truth. The terror of God should lead to the ecstasy of man. After Uzzah's death, David had a fearful sense of God's holiness. And still yet after Uzzah's death, David is found here dancing. God's holiness does not suppress joy, but stimulates it. You rejoice with trembling. We don't walk around fearful God will strike us down. Wherever obedience to God is, there is great joy. It's a paradox that such explosive power could bring such explosive joy. The lucky ark, the scary ark, the dusty ark, the wobbly ark, the risky ark, the celebration ark, 
Finally, the wet blanket on the ark. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. The author refers to Michael three times as the daughter of Saul. Not wife of David, but daughter of Saul. She's a lot like her old man here. She's seeing David politically and not personally. She views the festivities from the palace window. She, she once helped David escape her father Saul through a window. And looked out of that window with love. She now sees David as her father Saul did through a window. At the very moment of David's, at the very moment David's heart was full of excitement, hers was full of disgust. Why was she not there in the city celebrating? She's a bit of a wet blanket on the ark party. Everyone is out in the town square except for her. Verse 17. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. The parade is over. When, when the ark enters the city, the, the mood is one of festivity. David gives each person a, a filet mignon, a, some raisin bread. Blessing abounds in the presence of God. Each item was a delicacy. Very expensive. This is royal extravagance. I want you to notice the pattern of the chapter. We begin the first four verses of bringing up the ark. And then that is followed by joy, which is followed by tragedy, which is followed by David's reaction, anger and fear, which is followed by, in the house of Obed-Edom, blessings. Notice how it's duplicated in the second half of the chapter. Verses 12 and 13, bringing up the ark, followed by joy, followed by tragedy, followed by David's reaction, Worship and generosity, followed by, in the house of David, contempt. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. (laughs) In other words, David wants to bring the ark celebration home, but Michael wasn't having it. She flew off the handle, berated him. He didn't receive a hero's welcome, but a wife's scorn. Verse 20 continues, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Sarcastic voice. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She accuses David of indecent exposure. He's acting like a burlesque street dancer. Your priest's apron is a little too little. 
There are sexual accusations here. You're purposefully flashing the women in the parade. It may seem like Michael's concern is about David's immodesty. But she's really mad because he would not conduct himself in haughty pride. David, you shouldn't be mixing with the people. You should be aloof. You've disgraced yourself before the people. You're lacking proper decorum. You're not acting distinguished. She walks toward him in her perfectly pressed dress. Her makeup applied with dignity. Not a hair of her head out of place. The picture of elegance. And she says, you're uncouth. Casting off your royal robes like you're a commoner. Just one of the herd. I think she mentions the servant girls, not as rivals to her husband's affection, but as objects of low social standing. She's annoyed because this behavior is is unbecoming of a king. He should act with pomp and circumstance more kingly. I'm the king's daughter. I was brought up in this. And you're no more than riffraff. I'm classy. And you're acting trailer park. To her, this is on the level of urinating in public. This scathing sarcasm and outright mocking of David shows the spirit of Saul lives in her. He falsely accused David, and so does she. She simply can't celebrate what God is doing. The fact that she couldn't rejoice in God's ark says something about her. And I think there's something for us in this. Your commitment to worship the Lord could cause strife in the family. Did for David. Now this could come in many different forms and rise to many different temperatures. If you commit to following Christ, you are no longer a member of this family. Get out. Could be that. Or... Being religious may hurt your stock among the drinking elite in the town. Church going isn't very popular among the wine and cheese crowd, honey. You want to be a missionary? Darling, don't don't move away from us. Find a place nearby. There's no need to go over there and die for no good purpose. We need a... We need a family day at the lake on Sunday morning. Why don't we skip the corporate worship? Your commitment to worship the Lord could cause strife in the family. No, we we need family time around the word. The deepest and most meaningful family time you could ever experience is around the word Sunday mornings. Hear me, beloved. When Christians realize the holiness of God, they, like David, will prioritize their participation in corporate worship. Verse 21. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. Notice these three words. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Wife, I'm not dancing before those ladies. I'm dancing before the Lord. 
This is sacred enthusiasm. Plus, I'll dance all I want because God chose me over your father. I've been elected, divinely elected as Israel's king. David rejoices in his election, which leads us to this. I'm elect, so I got to dance. Now, that's not original with me. Charles Spurgeon said that. I liked it so much, I just had to bring it to you. Some truths about God are offensive when you first learn them. Election seems to be one. But it doesn't take long before what once made you offended begins to make you dance. Election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. We are worse than worms. Yet God chose us. We along with David dance because of our election. Now another truth from this passage. If you're going to truly worship God, you're going to face some wet blankets. The Lord is wondrously good. So rejoice unashamedly. You may have to say to someone, your sarcasm isn't going to stop my praise. I have a disregard for human opinion. God's opinion is the only one that has weight with me. You you can look down on me from your window of superiority, but I'll keep celebrating the goodness of God. I heard Alistair Begg say once, I'm going to raise my hand and praise God. And frankly, I don't care what you think about it. It's for the Lord. David says in verse 22, And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. I'll gladly look like a fool to those not celebrating the goodness of God. I'm not worried about my dignity and honor. I'm worried about his dignity and honor. The only audience that really matters to me is God. Verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. The text seems to hint that she was wrong and gets what she deserved. Now this passage does raise an interesting question. How does David's behavior in this parade influence our time in corporate worship? How does David's behavior in this parade influence our time in corporate worship? You'll hear pastors say, David danced before the Lord, so we dance on Sunday morning. Friend, this is not a regular meeting for gathered worship. So David's example does not provide a basis for worship services today. This is not a mandate to dance in church. There are only a few examples of dancing in the Old Testament, and they all seem to be a a spontaneous response, not a choreographed performance. These dance teams in churches, that is nonsense. I've seen churches near us do this with with little girls dressed in some ridiculous skimpy outfits giving interpretive dance to some worship song during the service. If if you want to have interpretive dance teams in your church, fine. That is between you and the Lord. But don't you dare quote this passage as a license to do it. I read J.D. Greer, who commented on this passage, and he said, and I quote, 
Some of you need to repent of the dignity you carry yourself with in church. Some of you need to repent of the dignity you carry yourself with in church. End quote. What? See, that's what kind of stuff this text isn't teaching. Now, it may be true that you need to do that, but it's not true that you need to do that from this text. Now, what I'm about to read, I don't necessarily hold to, but I I didn't want to keep it from you. Warren Wearsby said, once you get to the New Testament times, it was difficult to distinguish between Christian dances and the dances that honored a pagan god or goddess. So the early church abandoned the practice altogether and later the church fathers condemned it. Now, that may be going beyond scripture, but but that was the case in history. That's what happened. I, 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 I want to be... Um, I want to be true to both. Either, either way, we can all agree that David wasn't doing gyrations before the ark. It, it was something spontaneous. And, and the word for dancing here is actually whirling. It's, it's whirling. Which brings us to another question. Should we treat any one object like David and Israel treated the ark? Should we treat any one object like David and Israel treated the ark? Maybe a cross necklace or a church building or a preaching desk or a statue or a painting or a historical site? The answer is no. The ark was a unique object lesson that God temporarily gave his people. Those object lessons ceased when Jesus came. No other structure holds any special significance or a more focused presence of God in it. Not a statue of Jesus that cries in India. Not the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Not a statue of a church saint. No ancient painting, no beads, no candles. There is a reason we don't call this area here the altar. Because Jesus died on the last altar called the cross. So there are no more altars for Christians. We don't invite you to come down here and get saved like it's something special about this location that doesn't exist right there in your seat. Phillips points out that the problem with worshiping God through pictures or other images is first that they they involve an imagery rendering of God that is tainted by the artist's ideas and is bound to be false. A, a holy God cannot simply be captured by a human artist. God, in his ultimate wisdom, did not choose to reveal himself by an image or a painting. He chose to reveal himself through words. I don't think pictures or images should ever be used to aid in worship. Since they, in fact, do not help us know Christ better. Now, let's end with this. This passage gives us the gospel according to the ark. You've read the gospel according to Matthew, a gospel according to Mark. This is the gospel according to the ark. Jesus fulfills what the ark symbolized. On the annual day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle sacrificial blood on the sin offering lid that was on top of the ark. So the people learned that they could be forgiven 
through a substitutionary death of a sacrifice. It happened for 500 years. All that blood on that lid for 500 years points to Jesus' blood shed on the cross that was applied to his elect. No more sacrifices, no more arcs needed. Jesus Christ is the better sacrifice and the better ark. Come to this God with confidence that you will not be struck down because you have repented and believed on Christ.